Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is uh, Richard Dahlstrom. I'm from Seattle. And I thought before we get into the text tonight, I'd just introduce my wife to you as well. My wife, Donna, uh, would be here, except for the fact that we live in the mountains because we have a house in the mountains that has a mother-in-law apartment. And my literal mother-in-law lives with us. On Friday, she celebrated her 96th birthday. So she's uh, delightfully strong and healthy, and uh, it's my wife's privilege to be the caregiver for her. But that also means that when I'm on the road, she's not on the road because she needs to be there. So she uh, sends her greetings. The last time I did this, my wife was with me, and uh, we spent every day hiking during the daytime, and then uh, I'd come and teach in the evening because my wife was an outdoor recreation ma major and loves the mountains as I do. So good to be together. Also, I want to show you tonight, uh, if we go to the next slide though, I'll kind of show you where we're heading in the, in the time here. Uh, oh, I have this thing. I can do it. There we go. So what I want to do this week is answer what I think are the most important questions that humans ask. And there are probably more than six, but we're going to look at five or six of them together at a time this week. And these questions, everyone has answers to these questions. But if we have the wrong answer, it takes us down the wrong path in our lives. The church that I led for 25 years is using these questions to frame our discipleship framework in our church. And every one of these questions uh, has... Uh, uh, like a, a Bible study attached to it. So that's what, kind of what we're going to do this week. And every one of the questions, the Bible study, is a character study. So this morning, if you were here, we looked at why am I here, and we looked at Abraham, right? Tonight, how does my creator view me? It's the question of identity. And for that question, uh, we're going to look at Jacob. Tomorrow night, how specifically am I called to bless the world? Everyone who have a universal calling like Abraham, but we also have each one of us unique callings, right? And how do we find that calling, live into that calling, and adapt as our calling changes as we grow older, which I think is important for this audience because everyone in the room is growing older. And so we want to learn how to adapt to our calling as we grow older. We'll look at Moses for that one. Posture of humility, how do I deal with brokenness and failure? Uh, uh, we'll either look at Peter or Judah, depending on how I feel after praying on Wednesday, right? So that's what we'll do then. And then these last two, what habits will help in my journey toward wholeness? That's the Apostle Paul and spiritual disciplines and embodiment. What does a whole person look like? And the answer is Jesus. And so we would look, if we have time, we'll get into that as well. So that's kind of where we're going. I'm really excited about this material. Uh, I'm spending a great deal of time preparing curriculum around it for discipleship. And my hope is that it will feed you as well. So tonight... Uh, we're going to look at Jacob. And so if I go on in the slides, I want to open by sharing a story. If you were here this morning, this is my dog. Uh, his name is Silver Fur. He's a mini husky. He's fully grown at 11 pounds, right? So he's a little, he thinks he's a big husky, and he acts like a big husky. We go, we go skiing together, and uh, he's on leash. And if we, if we get to a level part, he will pull me at 11 pounds on the skis. He's just amazing. But he's also fiercely protective of the entire family. 
and uniquely protective of this one. This is my youngest grandchild. Her name is uh, Zisu, and uh, she has a story. She was born in October this past. My son calls me. He says, hey, Dad, we, you know, Lindsay's going into labor. Exciting. And then three hours later, got a new baby. Exciting. It's a girl. And then an hour after that, uh, she was born in a, in a midwife center. Hours after that, take her to the hospital 20 miles away. Uh, her oxygen level isn't coming up. It's staying low. So then, another call two hours later, dad, her, now more serious, her oxygen level is starting to decline. And then four hours after that, uh, dad and my son is just, you know, broken up. He says, we're going to have to medevac her to Seattle Children's Hospital from this little town called Wenatchee. It's a two-hour flight, or it's a, not a two-hour flight, it's, a, it's 150 miles or whatever. And um, Seattle Children's is this remarkable hospital. And by now it's 8 p.m. By 10, she's on this plane being medevaced. And my son calls me when he's in the hospital. And he says, Dad, uh, the nurses told me to find a way to, to prepare to tell my, my wife that she didn't make it. Her oxygen levels were still declining, right? So uh, I drove down to the city, and we were all praying, of course, and then her oxygen level stabilized, and then very slowly began to climb back up. She was in ICU for a week, and then was released, and then within 10 days was back home and is now this beautiful baby who is really a miracle and an answer to prayer and a testimony, honestly, a testimony to modern med medicine and what God has done. God has given uh, us brains and we, we do the work and with prayer and with tents filled with oxygen and uh, an entire team of doctors who are really skilled, they saved Zisu's life. But now, it's, what's so interesting is when Zisu comes, uh, my dog Silver fiercely protects her. He knows that she was, I believe that he knows she was vulnerable, and he will be right by her side, and if, if anybody comes near, he'll start barking. Leave her alone, leave her alone. I'm taking care of her. I'm for her, right? And I just love that because that's what we're going to look at tonight when we look at the character of Jacob, right? Jacob is our study tonight in the question, how does my creator view me? And I just want to tell you guys, how we answer this question determines everything. As you know, if you're here this morning, Dathan, the CEO here, said, you know, over the course of the summer, it may be the case that there will be kids here who are suicidal in all likelihood. Yeah, and I've been a pastor for about 40 years now and can tell you that most people, overwhelmingly most people, have this, just this gnawing sense of inadequacy and shame and kind of self-loathing. 
it presents in anxiety, it presents in fear, it presents in self-medicating with alcohol and drugs and pornography and unhealthy sex and all kinds of things. But the root of it is this. I don't measure up. I'm not living my best life. Many people feel it inside. And then the presumption is their creator is mad at them, right? And so we're going to kind of ask the question tonight, how does God view us? And on what basis does God view us? And our case study is Jacob. So what we're going to look at tonight is uh, identity offered to Jacob, identity rejected, and then how God intervenes after that identity has been rejected. So watch this uh, and, and turn with me. We're looking at Genesis chapter 24, right? So if you know the kind of genealogy of Jesus, this morning I articulated that Abraham uh, would be the father of nations. Eventually, he gave birth to this miracle child named Isaac, right? And then Isaac married Rebekah uh, as he grew up. And Rebekah was having a hard time uh, conceiving. And then we pick the story up in Genesis chapter 24. And, uh, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 25 in verse 19. So here's the, the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And then verse 20 of Genesis 25. Isaac was 40 and he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, Bethuel. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered and his wife conceived. But the children struggled within her. And she said, if it's, this, if it's so, why am I this way? So uh, there's a battle going on in the womb, right? She has twins. And the, these children are not just kicking, but fighting in the womb. And she, so she asked God, she says, God, explain this to me. And then this is what God says in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body. One will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now, you know, I've read this a million times. Only recently did I realize that when God said one will be stronger than the other, it was unclear who would be the strong and who would be the weak. Who do you think the strong was? Was it Jacob or was it Esau? It's a really interesting question. On the one hand, we would say, of course it's Jacob. Jacob was chosen by God, blessed by God, had the strength of God. He's the strong one. But on the other hand, when they come out of the womb, right, how's the situation? Uh, Esau is born first. He's the oldest. And he's not only the oldest, but as children, on a physical basis, he's the strongest. He's the, he, quote, unquote, he's the man's man. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, Esau came out hairy. Jacob is smooth. Esau likes to hunt. Jacob likes to play the flute. Esau drives a Hummer. Jacob drives a Prius. I'm setting it up so you see. Jacob is domesticated. Esau is wild. And so, if one is strong and one is weak, on a human level, we would say what? Oh, Esau's, Esau's the strong one. Jacob's the weak one. And so there's strength and weakness depending on one's perspective. But this is the one thing that we know is prophesied and irrevocable. The older will serve the younger. 
Okay? Now that is not only a prophecy, but that's contrarian to everything about the culture. In the culture, the oldest son would inherit everything, right? That's how agrarian societies in many places of the world still work to this day. The oldest son inherits everything, and then the younger son works for the older son. And here, what we're reading is, no, no, the older will serve the younger. So God, watch this, before they're born, before they're born, God has promised Jacob will be the son of destiny who will fulfill the blessing given to uh, Abraham. Jacob will fulfill the blessing, not Esau. Before they're born, before there was an altar call, before we knew anything about their devotional life, before we knew who would drink alcohol and who would be sober, who would be angry and, and, and who would be patient. Before anything, God said this, it's done, man. I've got my eyes on you. Now, I just got to say this up front. Don't fixate on how Calvinistic that sounds. Because the point is not who's predestined for heaven and who's predestined for hell. How do we know that? We know that in many ways. First of all, when these two reconcile, as we'll see in a few minutes, when the, when the brothers ultimately reconcile, what does Esau say to Jacob? Hey, there's, you have no need to worry. God has taken care of me. So God continued to take care of Esau. Here's the other thing that we know. It says in John 3.16, God so loved the elect. No. What? God so loves the whole world. Jesus stands up in John 7 and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If predestination means that only the elect can even respond to the call of Christ, then when Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, he's lying. <laughs> because not everyone can come and drink. But because everyone can come and drink, and because God so loved the whole world, the point that God is trying to make here isn't that I chose this one and didn't choose this one. The point that God is trying to make is that the choice of this one is utterly, completely unconditional. It's unrelated to his performance. And how do we know that? He was chosen before he's ever born. Now, I'm adopted, so this whole notion of being chosen is very meaningful to me because uh, when I was nine years old, my adoptive parents had a meeting with me, and in retrospect, they were quite nervous. But they said, uh, and I'll never forget their language, they said, hey, uh, honey, we want you to know that in most families, the children that are in that family, the parents are kind of given those children through birth. They're given those children. In other words, the parents don't have a choice. But with you, my parents said, we chose you. Isn't that nice? And I was like, yeah. That's nice. I'm chosen. And then I asked the question, why'd you choose me? And they said to me, well, um, kind of an interesting story. Born in Oakland, and uh, I, was, I was in a, uh, an adoption center, I guess you'd say. My parents had filled out the paperwork. They'd done the interviews. I was six months old. There were a number of boys in a row. They wanted a boy. They'd already adopted a sister four years earlier. And uh, so... Once they filled out all the paperwork, they were told, hey, there's a line of boys in there. Go pick one. 
1956. I think things are different now, but that's the way it was. Go pick one. And so I said to my, uh, I said to my dad, so you went in and I was one of five. Why'd you pick me? And my dad, he does this. He says, I took my thumb and I wiggled it in front of each kid to see what they would do. The first one ignored the thumb. The second one was sleeping. Third one started to cry. Came to you, wiggled the thumb, and you grabbed it and started laughing. And so we looked at each other and said, this is good enough. Let's take this one. <laughs> I was blown away then. But to this day, it's such a powerful picture to me of how God's choice determines our destiny, right? I was chosen in that family, and you have no way of knowing this, but my adoptive dad's mother was the cook at a sister camp to Hume Lake called Mount Hermon. Some of you know it. It's in Santa Cruz. When I was 12 years old, I uh, was staying there as I would every summer with my dad and my grandmother, and I went up to the conference center where the adult guy was speaking, as I'm doing now, and I went up there to buy beef jerky at the snack shop, and the guy had a British accent. And so I went in, and I sat in the back, and I listened, and I liked what he was saying so much that I bought his book. And his book, it was by a guy named uh, John Hunter, a book called Limiting God. I was 12 years old. Fast forward 20 years, I'm a now pastor, San Juan Islands, Washington State, and uh, I, this John Hunter guy, he spoke for Cape and Ray Hall in England under the banner of Torture Missionary Fellowship. So I called him and I said, I want this John Hunter guy. I read his book 20 years ago. Can he come speak at my church? He said, uh, no. He doesn't travel anymore. He's now 90. <laughs> but um, did you know there's a Cape and Ray just 100 miles from you up in Canada? I called the director there. He came and spoke. We became friends. He invited me to come speak there. When I was speaking there, I met the founder of Torchbearers, Major Ian Thomas, who has spoken many times, I know, at Hume Lake, who th in this room, <laughs> who then uh, invited me to go speak in England, and that's how I became affiliated with Torchbearers, and why I'm here tonight. Because when I was six months old, I grabbed a thumb. In other words, God has chosen you. Chosen. Chosen for a calling, as we'll see tomorrow night. Chosen for destiny. Chosen for a blessing. Chosen to receive a blessing. Chosen to give a blessing. Why? Oh, you know, God looks around and he finds the best person. Hey, get over it. No. God chooses out of mercy all of us. And so we want to lean into that. That's the situation for Jacob. He, he, if he does nothing, he will be the son to inherit the destiny of the line of Christ. He'll inherit the birthright. He'll inherit the blessing. If he does nothing, watch this. It will be what? Given to him. Oh, but you know what? We like to earn our way, don't we? And so then, uh, Jacob's like this. I got to get this stuff, right? I got to get the blessing. I got to get the birthright. And so what does he do? Well, I, you all know the story, but just to review, uh, one day, as they're older, they're now in this highly dysfunctional family of uh, favored sons, where, whereby Rebecca 
loves Jacob and Isaac loves Esau, right? So it's a toxic family. And uh, one day, Jacob is making some stew, as he's prone to do. He loves to be in the kitchen, loves to cook. Esau's out hunting, strikes out, comes in. He's hungry. He's grumpy. We have a word in Seattle, hangry. You know what I mean? Hungry and angry. That's Jacob. He's like, give me some stew. And then Jacob is like this. Of course, I'd love to give you some stew. Um, there's just a one small fee. I'd like the entire promised land, right? Like the whole thing, the, 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 the land that God had promised the nation of Israel, just let that be my land, not your land. And Esau's like this. What good is land if I'm hungry? And so he trades the land for the stew. Then, so Esau's annoyed, right? He made a terrible choice, uh, but he lost the land. And then, uh, as, as um, Isaac's about to die, he says to Esau, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. So go out, hunt some game, and bring it in, and I'll eat the meal, and I'll bless you. Rebecca hears it. You know the story. Rebecca says to Jacob, go to the barn, kill a goat, make a meal, put the goat skins on your neck and your arms, because remember your brother's super hairy, put on uh, Esau's clothes, go to dad, feed him, get the blessing. And Jacob's super passive. He does the whole thing, and he steals the blessing as well. So now watch this. Here's, this is Jacob. Called? Check. Loved by God? Check. Has a destiny? Check. Wants to do God's will? Check. If God's will means living into this calling of having this blessing, that's exactly what I want. But the name Jacob, literally the name Jacob means this, heel grabber, or another way of saying it is supplanter. And supplanter means this. Look, I'm going to take by, by work and deception what God wants to freely give me. To take by either work or deception what God wants to freely, freely give me. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at rest. I'm not living in integrity. I'm not, living in, I'm not fulfilling my calling because what's my calling? My calling is to display the character of God. And what's, what character is Jacob displaying? He's displaying dishonesty, distrust, uh, theft, lying, and stealing. So his brother's really mad now, but his brother's like this. No problem. Here's what we can do. Uh, Dad's about to die. And as soon as he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And it won't be a contest. Who's got the Hummer? <laughs> Who's got the Prius? So Esau's like this, I'm just going to kill Jacob, and then it'll all be mine again. I'll have the blessing, I'll have the land, I'll just kill him. So that's the situation in the family, the single family on the planet chosen to display the character of God. How are they doing? C minus? It's a stinking disaster, right? So then uh, Rebecca says to, to, to Jacob, hey, your brother is comforting himself by planning to kill you. So, leave the land and go to your uncle Laban, watch this, for a few days till, this, till his anger subsides. 
Leave, now, if you're here this morning, leave the land that represents what? Rest. Leave the place of rest and go into another place and just wait there. And we won't deal with this thing. We're just going to let it blow over, right? How long is he out of the place of rest? Does anyone know? Over 25 years. Not a few days. 25 years. So he's down on the run. Now, here's the takeaway from this section. This is identity rejected. It's rejected through unbelief, right? Like, it's all true. God loves me. God's for me. God has a calling on my life. God wants to bless me. God wants to use me. But if I am unable to receive that and instead work my hardest to make it happen in the strength of my own humanity, I will not represent the character of my creator. Does that make sense? And the reason this matters so much is because evangelical Christianity is ripe with disaster after disaster after disaster of ministries that begin successfully and then imploded. Why? Because it was done not of the power of the spirit, but of the power of the flesh. And so now, today, in my city, many people drive right past churches not interested at all in the claims of Christ because of the reputation of Christianity. Not because of Jesus, but because of the reputation of Christianity. And that reputation is this. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of a word cloud done in the Seattle Times. Hey, when, when I say Christian, what words come to mind? In my city, what words come to mind? If you do a word association, what were the biggest words? Judgmental, hypocritical, greedy, hungry for power. No wonder nobody wants to be a Christian if that's what we're presenting to the world. And yet, here's the thing. I can identify with Jacob. Because there's a thing in me that, watch this, doesn't want to wait for God to work, but wants to take matters in my own, my own hands and succeed every time. There was a situation one time. Uh, how many have been to Seattle in here? Anybody in the room? Been to Seattle? So you know Pike Place Market, right? It's right downtown. I live maybe five miles north of there. I can ride my bike down there. Uh, so I'm down at the market one day, and I'm walking down to the market from 4th Avenue down to the waterfront, and there's a gal handing out Bibles, right? So she's handing out Bibles, and she's got a smile on her face, and it's all good. And she, tried, she wants to hand me a Bible, and I said, no, I'm already on the team. That's all I said. And then I started to walk away, and then she said, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and do you give evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues? And I said, well, I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit, but I don't speak in tongues. She says, well, you, you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit then. And if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you're not saved. And then she tries to hand me a Bible. And I said, oh, no, I am baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I can prove it. And I grabbed the Bible, and then I opened the Bible, and I started convincing her that one can be baptized with the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues. And for every verse that I lobbed her way, she had a grenade to lob back for me. And pretty soon, we're just, you know what we're doing? At Pike and Pine, we're arguing. We're just arguing about the Bible. And I'm like, I'm right. No, I'm right. Back and forth. And then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a young girl, and she saw us, and she crossed the street with her friend, and I heard her say as she walked by, that's why I left the church 10 years ago. Do you understand? Like, I so desperately want to be right. I was like this. 
I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make a ministry happen. Don't do that. Learn to wait. God has promised. You have a calling. You have gifts. You have a destiny. You have a future. Wait. Watch it unfold. So that it's a testimony in the end, not of what you've done, but but of what God has done. Does that make sense? So now James on the run. And uh, the first night, he's in the desert, and he, like, he's got a rock for a pillow. And if you've ever slept in the desert, you know that everything comes alive at night in the desert because in the, in the day, it's like Fresno. It's just too hot, right? <laughs> so everything comes alive at night. I mean, I, lived, I grew up in Fresno. And it, like at night, that's when everything happens. Tennis happens at night. Softball happens at night. Walking happens at night. Going on a metal slide only happens at night because you could try an egg on it at noon, right? So, like, same thing in the desert. So here's Jacob, and he's, you know, there's all these sounds, and then he has a dream, and in a dream, uh, watch what happens. Um, he sees a ladder. I'm reading in chapter 28, verse 12, 13. Uh, uh, angels ascending and descending, and then the Lord is standing above the ladder, and, the, and God speaks to Jacob. Now, just stop right there. Think about this for a minute. If you have lied at work, cheated at work, stolen at work, and then you're leaving town, and you stop at a coffee shop, and your boss is there, and he says, hey, Jacob, I've been waiting to talk to you. Like, if you were going to finish the script, what would, you, like, what would it be? Well, I can tell you what it would be. It would be like this. Uh, listen, I chose you, but let's, take a, let's just take a look at your performance since the moment you were chosen. Uh, you sold a bowl of soup for 15 million acres. Not illegal, but certainly immoral. Uh, you lied about your identity twice. When, when, you, when you brought the meal to your dad claiming to be Esau, and your dad said, how did it happen so quickly? You drugged my name through the mud. You said, oh, God blessed me and caused it to happen. You took my name in vain. You lied. You cheated. You stole. You're fearful. You're anxious. You haven't reconciled with your brother. You're on the run. Uh, you know what? You're fired. I gotta Listen, I'm trying to build the people of God here. I need someone on my team who I can count on. Get out of here. I'm going to find somebody new. Now, why would I write that script? Because that's the script of our culture. That's totally the script of our culture. If you've, done, if, if you've ever been, if you've ever sat under a performance review, you know exactly this language, right? And, and, and you understand what improvement plan means, right? It means I'm watching every step. And the next time you steal a pencil, boom, you're gone. One T, two T's, out of the game. That's our world. It's not God's world. Because when, God's, when God meets the liar and thief that is Jacob, this is what he says. I'm the Lord, the God of your father uh, Abraham, God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and all your descendants of uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
I am with you. I will keep you. I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised to you, for I am the Lord. Boom. In this moment, God is like that dog with my granddaughter. Do you understand? Like, God is there with Jacob saying, listen, we're, I'm, gonna, I'm totally, irrevocably, unconditionally for you. And I'm going to see this through. Have you blown it? Yeah, you've blown it. Are you afraid? Yeah, you're afraid. Are you burnt out? Yeah, you're burnt out. Are you dealing with a ton of shame because the scripture culture has given you is this. If you fail, you're not worthy. I'm telling you, you were never worthy. It's not about you performing. It's about me loving you unconditionally and you having the, the humility to receive it. So then Jacob wakes up and he's like this. Wow, God was here. I don't even know it. God, in the midst of my failure, God was here. Man, folks, that's good news. Because we can quit pretending that we evangelicals have all the moral high ground. And instead, say, we live our lives like everybody else. There's blood on our hands. There's dirt on our feet. We've blown it. We've, we've doubted. We're, we're lonely sometimes. We're anxious sometimes. We've, 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 fought, we've fallen short. Here's the good news. We serve a God who loves us not based on our performance. That ought to be our message because it certainly is God's message. So that's kind of where God meets Jacob. But then you have to understand this. When God says, I love you, what he means by that is not this kind of um, weak, unconditional acceptance that's going to allow you forever to wallow in your dysfunction. God's like this. I love you so much that I'm not going to let you stay the way you are. I'm going to change you. And how does God change us? Oh, well, we all know. James chapter 1. Don't you hate this verse? Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials, knowing that it's these that transform you. So Jacob's about to endure a bunch of trials. Trial number one, he learns that we sow what we reap. And how does he learn that? Well, what was he sowing? Deception, right? He's now in this new land, and he falls in love with uh, Rachel, who's the youngest of two sisters. There's uh, a, a sister, Leah, as well, right? So you've got Leah, older, Rachel, younger. You've got Leah, um, less physically stunning. I'll just say it that way. And you've got, you got Rachel, who's drop-dead gorgeous. And, uh, you know, Jacob's been working for his uncle now for seven years. And then his uncle says, hey, uh, what should I, you know, you shouldn't be working for nothing. What do you want? I want to marry Rachel, right? So Laban's like, yeah, cool, good. And then he throws a big party. Give me, and then after seven years of working, he says, give me my wife. My time's completed. I might go into her, right? So he's got this one thing in his mind, right? He wants to be with Rachel. Laban gathered the men of the place, made a feast. And in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. Now, that seems in, in just unimaginable to us. But understand, the bride is wearing a veil, right? So the bride is veiled. And when it says here, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast, everybody also had a little bit of alcohol, probably, right? So everybody's 
in party zone. Here comes the bride, veiled, Jacob assuming he's marrying Rachel. There's the ceremony. And then we learned tonight about the longest chapter in the Bible, the shortest chapter in the Bible. Here's the funniest verse in the Bible. Uh, verse 25, the morning after the wedding. So it came about in the morning that Jacob awoke, and behold, it was Leah. That just cracks me up. Can you imagine waking up after the night of your wedding and realize you married the maid of honor instead of the woman that you proposed to? That's this story. So then he storms into Laban's office. He says, man, you cheated me. You're a deceiver, which is hysterical, right? And then uh, Laban says, well, in these parts, it's always the oldest who gets the blessing before the youngest, which had to be a low blow for Jacob, right? So, so now uh, Laban says, serve me seven more years, and you can marry Rachel. And so he serves the next, seven, the next seven years, but he gets her on credit. So he immediately has two wives. And as the story unfolds, uh, he, the next thing that God teaches him is how powerless he is. Because he sleeps always with the woman that he's attracted to, named Rachel, except when he can't, for whatever reason. She's mad, she had a headache, she's a ton of months. He sleeps with Leah. And yet, though he sleeps with her probably in a ratio of eight to one, Leah gets pregnant. And then pregnant again. And then pregnant again. And then pregnant again. And when I teach this for torchbearers, I put a big scorecard on a, on a board. And I started keeping score of the different wives and the children. Because Leah thought she'd be loved by producing children, and he still doesn't love her. Then Rachel is like this. Literally, she says in chapter 30, give me children or I die. And then, for the first time, Jacob's like this. Am I in God's place? In this case, here's Jacob. There's nothing I can do. I'm doing everything I can, and we're, you're not seeing fruit. We have to trust God. And then Rachel's like this, no, we don't. Take my maid, marry her, sleep with her, and all take credit for the child. So he marries a maid. He now has three wives. The maid has a child. The maid has another child. Now Leah's bummed. She says, take my maid, sleep with my maid. And then boom, boom, two more. So four, two, two. Then finally Rachel conceives. And then Leah conceives a couple more times. And then ultimately at the end of the story, Rachel conceives again and um, dies at, at giving birth to Benjamin, right? So you end up with 12 children, four wives, unbelievable jealousy. It, this is like the real housewives of Mesopotamia, right? It ought to be a reality TV show. It would be awesome because it's just such a disaster. And now he's ready to go home, right? So the way that this plays out is um, in chapter 32, he's going home, and so he says, hey, uh, last thing he remembered 25 years ago, what was his brother's plan? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill Jacob. 
So he sends like a reconnaissance team here, check things out, take some gifts to Esau, and come and report back, right? So uh, they're heading home, and then uh, the reconnaissance, the recon team comes back, and this is what they say. Look at verse 6 of Genesis 32. We came to brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and he's bringing 400 men with him. Boom. So Jacob, what does he immediately assume? Oh, you know what? He's still mad. He's going to kill me. So what does Jacob do? Watch this. We're just going to use this whole thing here now as a bit of geography. So um, Esau's coming from that direction. Out front, he puts the maid of his least favorite wife with her kids. Next, the next maid with her kids. Next, Leah with her kids. Next, uh, Rachel with, at this point she only has one, with her one. Then there's a stream. And then there's Jacob. What a courageous guy. <laughs> like, what do you think he's thinking when he does that kind of a lineup? I can tell you what he's thinking. He's thinking, you know what? Uh, maid number one is going to be out front. And if I hear screaming and dust is rising, I, I can do what I've always done. And what's he always done? He's run. I'll just run away. I'll just run. But he never gets a chance, and here's why. In verse 24, Jacob left alone on the other side of the creek. A man wrestles with him until daybreak. And we saw that he had not prevailed against him. He touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, Jacob said, uh, the man said, let me go, the dawn is breaking. Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. The man said, what's your name? He said, Jacob. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God and men and have prevailed. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. He says, why do you ask? And he blessed him there. And Jacob said, I have seen God face to face. My life has been preserved. The sun rose. Now watch this. The sun rose... And what happens when the sun rises, he's now walking with a limp because his hip, now he knows what? I'm broken and I can no longer run. Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians 12? I've learned to glory in my weakness. Why? When I am weak, then I am strong. So what does he do? Now, with a limp, he walks to the front of the line Face his brother, and they reconcile. Listen, uh, God is unconditionally, irrevocably, infinitely for you. You're blessed, everybody in the room. You have a calling. You have a destiny to bless the world. It doesn't matter if you're 80 or 10. You have a future. You want to live into that calling? <laughs> it begins with having the faith to believe that God wants to give us these gifts. And then the humility to just receive the gifts rather than try and earn them. And then finally, the capacity to see your brokenness as also a gift. Because when we see our brokenness as a gift, we stop fighting and we go to the front of the line. I used to argue with Mormons all the time. When I was in college, I read a lot of 
stuff about Mormonism and set a thing up. I we used to work for PG&E when I was studying architecture. And uh, I, I set a, a meeting up by feigning interest in Mormonism with a coworker. He invited me to his house, had a nice steak dinner, and then the bishop shows up at the door, you know, and the bi within an hour, the bishop and I are into it, and it's just like Bible grenades back and forth, right? And then finally, I asked the bishop a question that he couldn't answer. And um, to my shame, he couldn't answer it. He said, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you. And I said, I won. That's what I said. I won. Pure flesh. Pure Jacob. Pure me. Do you get it? Yeah. Immediately, the guy goes, my coworker, he says, Richard, get out of the house. He says, you weren't interested in fellowship or dialogue. You just came here to argue. I, it makes me sick. There's no peace in this house right now. Just leave. And I said that day, I will never again argue with a Mormon. And then fast forward, I've changed my majors. I had an encounter with God, and I'm up in Seattle, and I'm a music major, and a guy comes marching into a piano practice room, and he says, you're a composition major, I hear. Uh, I want to work with you. I have something in my head, and I want you to help me write it. It turns out he's a Mormon. And within five minutes, he's talking to me about the glasses and the book of Moroni and all of it. And I've heard it all, and I know it all. And I just said to him, hey, I said, hey, let's stop right here. I'm not going to talk to you about Mormonism. I said, here, this is what I know. Christ lives in me, and Christ is my source of joy and hope and meaning and calling, and I'm perfectly content. So if you're content, maybe you're content, I don't know. But I'm content, so you're not, there's no point. And then I found out he was living in his car. So I said to him, hey, why don't you come stay at my house tonight? Um, and I had a little basement apartment. He walks in, in my kitchen, you know, I'm in college, and I have a poster with all the names of God. And Jesus, of course, is on there, and so are all the other names of God. And this Mormon is like, you can't have Jesus on that poster. That's heresy. And I go, maybe to you, but I'm not going to argue about it. You want some Cheerios? Here, sit down. Ah, I want to get that poster off the wall. It offends me. I said, I'm sorry it offends you, but it doesn't offend me. It's my house. You can go sleep in your car, but I'm not going to argue with you. No, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus, you. I said, I've heard it all. No arguments. Let's just have some Cheerios. And then, you know, he's, he goes to bed. And then the next morning, you know, I'm leading music. This is Seattle Pacific. I'm leading a chapel. And so I said, hey, when he comes to chapel? And so he does. He sits in the front row. You know, we're singing out of hymnals because it's the 70s. And uh, the hymn for the morning was, And Can It Be? And every hymn has a verse above it. And the verse on that day was, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And all I had told him over and over again is Christ lives in me and that's it. It's enough. I'm perfectly content. He sees the verse. I'm leading the song. He has tears in his eyes. And then the guy who got up to speak was named Luis Palau. He's an evangelist. And the guy was doomed. Like he came forward and received Christ at the end of the, uh, of the message and was baptized later that fall at Seattle Pacific University. And it had nothing to do with arguing. It had, it had nothing to do with, with debate. It had everything to do with me giving up and saying, okay, God, you know what? I'm just going to follow the stream of your activity. 
And some days amazing things are going to happen, and other days it's going to look like nothing's happening. But I'm done fighting. I'm just going to live in the stream of your activity. That's Jacob at the end of his life. May that be us before the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks that we have these moments together this week. Thank you that we can know that we're like rooted and grounded in love. We have this identity in Christ. May we live in that. And when we fall away from that into, into dark places of shame or pride, bring us back as you did, Jacob. Thank you that you're for us irrevocably and conditionally. We give you the rest of the week. Look forward to it and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.